Welcome to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity is a culture of deliberately engaging in relationships of respect and empathy with others who are different, moving people from us versus them to we all belong. And our podcast explores people doing this work. In this episode, we welcome Jacqueline Font Guzman, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Eastern Mennonite University and Strategic Vision Director for the Center of Justice and Peacebuilding at EMU. Together, we explore how to make diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI work, transformative, including the importance of making it relational and building trust and partnership among groups in a community to forge strong connections. Talk to me a little bit about the work you do, um, what it is, and, and why you find it so important. I've been doing a lot of work um, lately with diversity, equity, and inclusion, but looking at it from the perspective of relationship-based DEI, as is usually referred to, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and grounding it in really the importance of connecting people and building relationships across differences in order to really be able to change institutionally structures that are oppressive for some and are privileging others, um, many times unintentionally, sometimes intentionally, but mostly unintentionally. And so that's the work I've been doing in in the last years, um, working a lot with anti-racism and equity and justice for LGBTQIA plus um, individuals, um, Latinx, and, and groups that have been historically and traditionally marginalized. The point you, there, there are several points, but two of the points I want to really dig into. One was the idea of um, systems and structures. I think we have a hard time with systems and structures in the U.S. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. My thoughts are, you know, that whole idea of manifest destiny and individual and pull yourself up. and But really, systems and structures mean everything. I would love to hear your thoughts on how systems and structures play a role in our lives and in the course of our lives. Of course, we have agency. Of course, we have responsibility to work hard and do all that. But, uh, you know, I feel like we can't, we, we never can have that balanced conversation. It's either one or the other. So how do you see systems and structures influencing us and influencing the way we engage with the world? That's a great question. And I, and I think um, in many ways, we are part of the systems and therefore part of the structure. So there's really no way of getting out of the system. That's the way I see it. And in the case of the U.S. in particular, we have structures and institutions and organizations and legal systems, healthcare systems, educational systems that truly by design have been privileging some people over other, mostly white, male, cisgendered, individuals that have some sort of power and usually educated. And I, I say that because I am also a lawyer and did some litigation work for, for some time significantly. And so I have that lens and frame of reference of the law in terms of structures and systems. And I can see how when you study the constitution and you study the original documents of how this nation is formed and shaped you know, we the people didn't really mean we the people. And if you look at the Federalist Papers and all the other history that is surfacing now, 
after Floyd's murder, you see that it's really by design. When you look about the segregation in this nation and how communities were purposely segregated by something I'm sure you and many of your audience may know in terms of redlining and, and literally sitting down and segregating and deciding what sections, geographical areas or communities were going to be allowed to take out loans and buy properties and buy homes and which ones were not. That is a legacy that still lives with us today. So the intentionality comes, that's the way the system was designed. And so we are living and are some surviving, some trying to thrive, some thriving in a system that when you enter it, and me as a Latina woman um, from Puerto Rico entering the system in the U.S., well, the systems are not really built for me. They're built with, in the case of education, with admission tests that are built for people that have a particular worldview and a particular privilege of having been able to go to a particular high school in a particular geographical area with particular parents and the wording and the language of how all these tests that seem to be objective and seem to be equal are really not. So that for me is a system. The system is all the sets of rules and policies and procedures and historical documents that have come to life that have created the structures and the systems for a group of people. And now we're asking everyone to be able to live in, into them and, and claim that they're equal, but they're really not. And so there is always this tension between our individual agency walking into the systems and trying to either navigate those systems and structures of power and oppression or dismantling them and changing them. And this is kind of a continuum. And so we choose our battles, right? When is it appropriate to really try to make changes and where is it appropriate to just learn how to navigate it until you can actually change it? And so there's a close relationship between you know, our agency and the systems and the structures that are in place um, in the U.S. specifically, I'm referring to now. Other countries have them as well, but I'm focusing here in the United States. Absolutely. Yeah, I think systems obviously come into play and structures whenever something is a community or society is built. So you brought up the idea of, you know, for those for whom the system is working, well, let's just move on. You know, it's like, but it's working. It's fine. So we're fine now, right? Without... Acknowledging and I think understanding, and this gets into that intentionality, unintentionality that you talked about a second ago. I, I think, you know, we can understand like if I break my arm, uh, you know, when I'm a child and growing, and it may affect the growth of my arm, right? And then maybe it's not as strong. I can still play sports and I can still work a little harder and get it to people understand that. But when it comes to things that aren't physical, it's sometimes difficult to understand. So I wonder if you can talk about that sort of intentional versus unintentional, because I think there is this, these battle lines are drawn. Like, if you're not with me, you must be against me. And I don't think that's always true. Some individuals have bought into the idea that they're really superior or privileged. And, and, and that is something that I think it's taught. It's not something, I don't think you're born with that. I think you're taught into... Um, I don't know who was a famous philosopher who said that um, that he did not know who invented water or, or who was aware of it first, but it wasn't a fish, right? Because fish are immersed in this water, and so they don't, it's, it's a thing. They don't know it's, a, it's something that there's a difference between water and not being immersed in water. So I think that lack of, of awareness doesn't necessarily come from evil intention. It's just that that is what you've been taught. That's what your surrounding is. And you don't know any better, and in the case of the U.S., because you are so segregated as a community overall, 
there's some individuals in rural areas, for example, in the U.S. that that literally were born and 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 raised and lived, and many of them even to this day, now that there's TV, they've seen black people in a TV, or maybe they have now travel and seen them, but that was not their experience growing up. They literally don't know what being black or being Latino or even being queer may be like. They have never had the opportunity to engage in a relationship, um, nevertheless cross paths um, individuals that are different than them. And so within these bubbles, we just are formed and are shaped and, and that shapes who we are. And so I think that's where I say like there's the unintentional part of it of, you know, you don't know any better. And so that's the unintentional part. I think there's also sometimes an intentionality of once you know all of that and become aware of some things that you may decide not to lose your privilege. And therefore, it will be okay to discriminate against someone in your mind that you perceive as being less than you or less equal or less human. And that is now a choice and an intentionality, right? Now is you are choosing to do that or to discriminate or to push aside someone or marginalize them because it's an issue of power. You don't want to share your power. You don't want to engage with others in ways that you feel will be threatening to you. And I think when you go down that path, it's intentional. I cannot claim ignorance anymore. When you have the case, and I'm blanking on her name right now, but there was this um, incident that went viral about this woman who was in, in New York City at Central Park um, walking a dog and there was a black man who actually asked her to, he was birdwatching and asked her to politely to comply with an ordinance so that um, she would put her dog on a leash. That was, she was just walking around the dog without being in a leash. And she dialed 911 and started in a conversation with him, which he recorded in his own personal phone. She knew exactly what she was doing. I am a white woman. I'm going to call 911. I'm going to say that there's a black man threatening me and she knew exactly that the system was going to be working in her favor she knew the reaction that that was going to have from police and and security enforcing individuals there's an intentionality there and that is not something that we can claim is ignorance it was clear from her conversation with this black man who had the audacity while being black and bird watching asked her to comply with an ordinance um that is intentionality but you also have the other aspects of individuals making comments, engaging in things like microaggressions, which is basically putting down someone with something that seems to be a joke, where people can authentically not see the harm that they're doing. And so I make a distinction between, you know, intentional discrimination versus the unintentional one. I think our system favors people to have all these biases and prejudices because of the way we're shaped and formed through the system. But we still have the agency to change that. Yes, absolutely. We have the agency to change that. And I'm so glad you mentioned bias because that's exactly where I wanted to go next is once we become aware uh, of these privileges that we have, we do have a choice. Um, and sometimes it's hard. But in that bird watching example, later upon reflection, you know, if she reflected at all, wow, I didn't know that was in me. 
I, you know, wow. Oh my God, I've got some work to do. Like, but then you got to do the work. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to try to recognize your own biases. And you also brought up the example of growing up in a bubble, growing up in a neighborhood, whatever, and your neighborhood is your neighborhood. And so it is what it's your world and it's how you orient yourself. And, and then you learn hopefully later that there are other things out there and then you decide what to do with that. So in deciding what to do with that in your work, how do you help people reckon with their biases. If you're going to engage in conversations and you're going to ask the question, I think you need to own what you hear. I think you need to be responsible for what you hear and what you do with it. Um, I think staying neutral when you hear something that it's clearly biased in a way that is oppressing someone. And it's actually not neutral, right? Right. And so it's not neutral, but when you're trying to use that as neutrality, that I think is probably a, a way of perpetuating this violence and this inequity. So you must be able to, to feel or understand or think that you have a responsibility with what you hear. So what are you going to do with that once you have it? What are you going to do with that self-awareness? How do you work with people to get to that self-awareness? And, and for me, a big piece of it is by sharing in relationships through storytelling and trying to humanize and share our common humanity. And we don't do that because we're too busy, again, in our own work or in our own bubble or we don't have time. Or we think that by just talking, we're not doing a lot. And I think that just talking doesn't get you anywhere. That would be the neutral part. Like, I'm just going to stay out of it, but I'm not really staying out of it because by not doing anything, I'm actually supporting a state or a an action that is violent against someone, that would be that neutral part that is not really neutral. But you also have the opportunity to talk and then act upon what you are hearing. And I think that is not a waste of time. That is, in, in fact, the only way that people have the authentic capacity to change and change systems and structures and institutions and policies within those institutions is to have that capacity of self-reflection self-awareness, and then be, being able to understand the impact that your inaction or action, depending on what it is, is causing upon others. And we can only learn that when we start talking with each other, when we start creating spaces that allow people to be able to talk with each other. So a lot of the work I do in the, from diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we have chosen at EMU a model that is relationship-based, is spending a lot of time creating the spaces for people to be able to connect across differences and having communications or working in projects together or doing something where you don't stay within your own unit. And, and difference can be in an array of ways, right? It could be in universities that are so hierarchical. It could be having a faculty member with tenure, a professor engaging with a staff person or a custodial or someone from maintenance. It is about creating those kind of spaces where I think you have the possibility of changing the systems because if you think about it, people are all over an institution. So that means that if I can get people to engage in relationships, I'm impacting the entire institution because relationships are everywhere. And so that is a way of affecting change and, and making structures and system change because it almost becomes a domino effect. People start talking, the narrative starts taking some traction and all of a sudden, literally before you know it, people at the executive teams or leadership um, positions are talking about starting to change policies 
that they didn't realize were hurting some people and others. And then you have the harder work, which is after you change the policy, how do you live into them? And again, you're going to need people and relationships to be able to live into those policies. So that is what anchors really a lot of the work that I do, be able to have people start seeing each other as humans really, and what their different experiences are like and what does it mean to live wherever you're coming from. And, you know, and it could be race, it could be geographical location, it could be anything. It doesn't necessarily, it could be the position you hold in the hierarchy um, in terms of your institution and how do you use that power. And that is, I imagine, where you and our co-founder, Palma Strand, Civity, probably connected. Absolutely. Because Civity also, the idea of relationality and power and helping the privileged engage to the extent that we can get these systems and policies changed. Talk a little bit about your connection with Palma and with the work that Civity is doing. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. Palma, um, first of all, is a dear colleague and friend. Um, we met over probably 16 years ago and we became started us being colleagues and became really good friends. And I've always found her work fascinating um, and, and her writings and, and how she has taken on this work in ways that are so passionate. So um, definitely I've learned a lot from her and, and we've collaborated on many things. And many of those things were in our former institution where she still works right now at Creighton. I used to be there before. And we did a lot of anti-racist work and basically raising awareness and, and educating people and trying really, really hard to role model um, our, our belief that I think we both shared of the importance of engaging with others that are different, of continuing to try to be empathetic and, and be relational, um, even when you don't have the privilege or you don't have the power and then it becomes easier said than done, right? So, so being able to stay with it, um, even in adversity or trying to change systems that, that don't want to change, um, that was something that I had the, the privilege of, of experiencing um, with Palma and working with her um, in community settings and in institutional settings. And so we do share those values. Um, and, and I asked her to do some training, actually, at EMU for our upper leadership and, and cabinet members and board of trustees to be able to hear from someone else's and a different voice and a different experience some of the work of civity. So our works are very much um, have intersected, have aligned. We have been allies. We have been um, all sorts of work that we've been done together because it, it stems from sharing that value and commitment that we see that as a way of really truly making change. And, it, and it's hard and it's not as easy as it sounds many times. Yeah, it is hard. I mean, like trying to get people to engage with their biases, trying to get people in a privileged position to, I mean, I don't necessarily see it as giving up privilege, but people do see it as I have to give something up to do this work. They do. Can you talk about any examples of doing the work and any of this stuff coming up and how you dealt with it? Absolutely. So one of the things, for example, in making change and working with people on how to support them in decentering that privilege, like being aware of it and being aware of the power they hold. Um, one of the, the, the biggest challenges and things that I confront all the time is actually fear. Fear of either perceiving it as I am losing power, fear of not being politically correct, you know, and I'm putting politically correct in quotes, 
um, fear of not knowing how to do because they don't know how to have these conversations because they've never had them when they're talking about diversity. Um, fear of harming someone by their comments. So sometimes it stems from a place of good, not from a place of, you know, not wanting to engage. I've heard words like, you know, people are frozen, which is no way to be able to engage with others um, and with diversity. So that is something that I constantly hear. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with diversity, equity, and inclusion expert Jacqueline Font-Guzman about how to make DEI work transformative and relational. Another one of the things that are, that are constantly present in, in doing this work um, that is challenging is I've become aware of the lack of psychological safety that we have overall, like everywhere, um, in different institutions, in different communities, in the healthcare settings. I, I do a lot of consulting for healthcare work as well. Um, in academic institutions, it's a, a profound lack of psychological safety. And by that, I mean um, the fear to be able to make a statement, make a comment, provide some suggestion defer or have a difference with what you're saying or where you're coming from, not having the safety to do that because people feel that somehow either their job will be on the line, um, there will be some sort of retaliation if it's an employee-employer relationship, um, that there will be a price to pay somehow. And that has become a real, real, real challenge that I'm seeing in many institutions and in many different settings and areas. And also the misconception, and, and I draw a lot from the work of um, Edmondson for, for, for this when I talk about psychological safety, and I've tried to embed this in my theory of change of DEI here at EMU. It's also confusing psychological safety as we all need to have a kumbaya and be happy and have harmony and, and, and not express what we're saying and, and be really nice to each other. Um, but not, not creating this space of niceness and at the same time holding people accountable. And so the tension then becomes, you're not in your best learning zone, right? You have low psychological safety and there is low accountability or no motivation. And you go into this apathy zone where no one changes anything. And that is just horrible, right? So it's hard to make changes and movements when you're in those spaces, and then fear for change, right? Um, doing a lot of um, also consulting and work within my own institution in terms of making curriculum changes to embed some of this work and other people's voices in the curriculum and the fear of some, you know, members of the faculty. I mean, EMU has actually done a really, really good job of doing a process where we've been working to do this in a more systematic way, listening to voices of students and faculty and staff and everyone, like really bringing the voices of students into this whole process. But some institutions are not there yet. They don't want to bring the students. And again, it's a perception of a loss of power and a perception of, you know, this whole debates around critical race theory that are happening in many places. It's fear. It's not wanting to change. It's keeping the status quo. It's there's a lot of that and, and the lack of psychological safety for people to be able to engage in these conversations without feeling that, that they will have a high, high price to pay. And so those are things that I've been confronting and it's everywhere. We haven't quite figured out that you can hold people accountable and have real roles 
And that still means that you can create a psychological safe space. That's an incredibly important point and and something that I think we should be talking about more because it is true that it's been branded kumbaya, like, oh, safe space. And and that's not it at all. My husband really likes to distinguish between cancel culture and consequence culture. You know, <laughs> yes. You're facing consequences for what you do, but that doesn't mean, you know, maybe you can learn from it, right? And there's not a lot of room to disagree in a trusting space, a safe, trusting space. And and I don't know whether the U.S. ever had that or what, how we lost it, but it's nice to be doing work to try to recreate it. We're not always clear also about what we're listening for or, or, or what are we being brought into? Are we listening for facts? Are we listening for emotions? Are we listening for both things? Are we listening? What is it that we're going to pick up of the story when people are sharing something with us? We're not taught how to be intentional about what exactly are we listening for. And I think the default and the easiest thing sometimes in the context of employment and work is to just focus on like the facts or you know the reports that are supposed to go on some official document to prove something or X or Y or Z or whatever it is. But we're not taught to be intentional about that. What are we listening for? That's something we need to get better at. Um, we are also... Um, not intentional about when we bring people into a conversation, what are we bringing them? Are we bringing them for input, feedback, understanding, convincing, um, just sharing information, an authentic dialogue, a debate? Um, I find that aside from the people that are doing this work, which get that, in our day-to-day, we are not forming managers, leaders, followers in ways that authentically set them up for success when they're going to have to go and talk with other people that are different. Um, so, so I think that is something that, that I try to role model and work hard at. What am I inviting people to do and how? The other big, big aspect is the difference between different aspects of culture and cross-cultural kind of engagement and how that relates with diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's safer to talk about culture, but culture doesn't address power issues. Culture is just telling you what is someone else's worldview or how they see the world, but it doesn't tell you the how they got to see that world or why they get to see the way they see. And so if we're going to have these conversations, we really should be intentional about what is the difference between cultural, intercultural, cross-cultural, and when we're talking about DEI and when we're talking about anti-racism and having difficult conversations. No, it's not about us having a different worldview. It goes deeper than that. It's about how are we sustaining the structures of oppression and their systems in place that are harming someone and that has really not much to do with our worldviews or our culture. So I think that is an important peace when we're inviting people to dialogue and conversation. It's funny that you say that. Vanessa and I were just having a conversation. Vanessa, you're from Chile. And we were talking about, she said, I'm underwater, which in the U.S. is, oh, no. And she's like, no, you explained to me, no, that means I'm focused. And so sharing cultural stories. And and I had a friend from Paraguay I shared with Vanessa who used to ask, what is this? What is this? What is this cheesy? What is this? She used to be like, explain these weird words to me. But that's a way in right? Like to trust and connection and and good feeling, but it doesn't get at the issue yet. So I appreciate the distinction you made and also the point about intentionality. So how do you try to create those 
um, psychologically safe spaces to enable this work to happen. Something tangible that I've been doing at EMU, because my theory of change is one that I that I think Civity actually also shares, right? Which is that relationship-based and empathetic and communication across difference. And I am in a position as the VP of DEI, I can use my power of the position to say, where do I want to focus and what is the areas where I can make and create the spaces? One of the ways that I have um, created the spaces is we were able to get some um, grant money from a donor. We are putting out grants where the community at EMU, faculty, staff, or students um, can apply for specific grants. And the intention of it and the role of it is we want people to, A, you must submit the grant in a way that collaborates across differences. So that's one of the criteria if you want to be selected. And again, differences broadly defined, but differences within different units, different campuses, different races, you know, whatever the difference is, but you need to name that difference and be aware of it. And you have to work on a project that is going to advance a sense of belonging on campus or diversity and equity and inclusion in some way, shape, or form. And that could be through artwork, that could be through doing a dialogue process, really the sky is the limit. But you must be able to work collaboratively with a project that advances one of those areas. And you must also be able to share that work with the community at large as part of your project. And so we are providing you funding to set you up for success for doing this. But those are the criteria. You're listening to This is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with diversity, equity, and inclusion expert Jacqueline Font-Guzman about how to make DEI work transformative and relational. Some people, there was one was an, an, an amazing um, project um, with LGBTQIA+, where they did a pop-up museum about the history of EMU and, and what, this, what had it meant to come out at EMU and the painful past because of the policies and procedures that EMU had in the past where they wouldn't allow um, people who were openly LGBTQ to be in a relationship with, with their partner or their colleagues if they, if they weren't married or they needed to get married and they, you could only get married if you were heterosexual between a man and a woman. So there was a lot of you know, history and pain there. And so it was the beginning of an attempt to do this and it was an amazing pop-up museum and as they were planning it, it brought people queer people, non-queer people. They used the money to create lunches as they were developing all of this. And then they opened this pop-up museum for the entire community to see. Um, we have someone, another group right now that is doing a mural in our science building that represents and brings into the forefront individuals that have been historically marginalized and excluded from the sciences. So women, um, black, indigenous, queer, you will be given the grant money if you can show how you're collaborating and connecting across differences and bringing in the community to have conversations. This group sent out a survey um, to, to select who were the individuals that were going to be represented in this mural. They will be then having an event when it's all done to share it with the community. And of course, there will be a sense of permanency because the mural will stay there. So those are the type of things I am using my role and my position to be able to encourage people to create those spaces. 
um, and incentivize them for doing so. And in the process, they're connecting with each other. They're building relationships with each other uh, in a way that is across differences and hopefully makes our campus more belonging and welcoming as things like museums and, and artwork is, starts to spread out throughout our community. But those are just some ways. That it's a safe space to create those communities that they connect with each other. And it's a safe space to have this discussion as they engage with each other and what does that mean? And then just being out there and role modeling what I'm asking others to do, um, connecting with people, having one-on-ones on a regular basis um, with no particular agenda, just to have a conversation. It brought to mind as you were talking, um, I guess it, it it's connected partially to the earlier reckoning with our biases and um, self-reflection, and then also creating a space for conversation. Um, I don't know if you're aware of the Kansas City Star. They did a whole investigative report on themselves and their coverage of black community members over the course of their history. And then they reported on it. And of course, it wasn't good. And and they they faced it and then discussed it and reckoned with it and invited the community to take part in that. And um, that's very different than what you're talking about. But the idea of reckoning, reflection, and engaging the community are these three really important pieces. And I think civity as well, you know, when we go into a civity training, maybe it's not so much of a reckoning, but let's get those in the room who have the privilege, who have the power, who have the positionality to reckon with what they do have, right? Like to acknowledge and then work with them on uh, seeing and inviting in and, and engaging with communities who may not have all of that. Lucky we have lots of willing participants. People seek out civity because they want to do this work, but it doesn't mean it's easy to face these to face these things. So how do you help maybe those who have the privilege, the power, the positionality, reckon with all of that and uh, and engage in a way that's helpful to evolving our systems and cultivating connections. One of the things is I've been trying to stay away from the word help in that context because I feel that it disempowers us. Um, it's hard. I still sometimes use it. It's so, you know, so ingrained in our brain. Um, but I come to that conclusion as I was working as a lawyer and then other experiences that I had were... I would come in to help and I wasn't aware that I was unintentionally disempowering people. So I probably used more like I have either a service to provide or stand in solidarity or support your efforts rather than help. I think help has a connotation in English that immediately like disempowers us. Yes, it creates a power structure. I use it sometimes, but I've been trying for many years now to just train my brain to not go there unless it's, it's appropriate, right, to use the word actually help. The centering of privilege and power is a really difficult thing to do. What I do is I use my own lift experiences, actually, and bring them to the table when I'm engaging with others who are in positions of power. So I am originally from Puerto Rico, and when I was raised up in Puerto Rico, I come from a very privileged family. I had an education. I could come to the United States and educate myself, went back to Puerto Rico, worked for many, 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 many years, most of my life there. And I had the privilege, right? It's a small island, Caribbean. You know, I just needed to say who my mother was or who my uncle was and things would happen. And I enjoyed that privilege. You use that privilege for good and I used it and I dedicated my life as a litigator to actually work with incarcerated individuals that were either in the prison system or mental health institutions. But I realized that I was there in a very position of power. And, and I remember clearly 
one time I was interviewing a prisoner. He was my client and we were talking and we were actually across the table and he started sharing a story about how he had ended up there. And I remember thinking something clicking me and, and, and said, wow, I could so easily be on the other side of this table had I not had a supporting family, had I not had the network, the networks that I had, had I not had the opportunity to have an education, how I not had so many other things. And it, and it was a time where I realized people are in jail for making stupid mistakes that for me are a mistake from my position of privilege. But for someone who wasn't had the privilege, it's not a mistake. All of a sudden it's a terrible criminal act and three strikes and you're out and then you're in jail forever. And so that was a big aha moment for me in terms of the beginnings of trying to cement a little bit better what that privilege meant that I had. You mentioned earlier that things were different when you came to the States. So how did that change? I remember coming to the States and all of a sudden losing all my privilege, just geographically. I was no longer white enough, even though I'm light-skinned, but I was no longer white enough. I had an accent. And I wasn't part of the privileged group, no matter how many degrees I had or no matter, you know, who I was. And so I, in a way, have been on both ends. And I was a woman in a place traditionally also. I had that same issue in Puerto Rico, but I only had to deal with the gender issue and all the other connections and background and family helped me overcome that. But here I was just a Latina, a woman not white enough, and with an accent. And things changed completely, how I had to navigate structures of power and racism in ways that I had never had to deal with back then. And so when I talk to people about how are your ways of decentering your privilege and becoming aware, I try to lead them to having those same aha moments that I had when I was interviewing this client of mine decades ago in a prison no matter how much privilege you have, there's certainly a one point in time in your life that you were somehow not feeling like you belonged. And it could be because you're in a poor neighborhood and you feel you don't belong, right? It could be for all sorts of reasons. But tapping into the experiential part of what that feels like is what I like to do when, when I am working with people or talking about how to decenter your privilege. Because again, it's like the fish that is in water, immersed in water. They, they don't know water is a thing. It's just the way they see the world, right? And so I try to use those experiences and try to identify and help and well, support people into identifying what are some times where they have experienced that sense of unbelongingness or inequity. And, and that's usually a good entry point, that it's okay to have these conversations and how the fact that they are fearful of hurting someone in itself comes from a position of privilege. That the fact that you can own the privilege to know that your words and your actions of how you interact can have such a profound negative impact and harm on someone else in itself is also a position of privilege. So what do we need to do to use the power you have in a more effective way? And what do we need to do to be able to start sharing some of that power? And so it's, it's an ongoing journey. As you all know, you do a lot of this work with um, Civity as well. 
in maybe different contexts, but it's I think it's a similar type of work. So I, I, I like to use some of my experiences with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Sharing stories with Civity and getting people to hear and listen to each other's stories and reflect on their own and see exactly what you saw when you were um, working with the person who was incarcerated and then reflecting on the fact that that could be easily you or me. And, um, and Civity definitely tries to get people to share stories to that effect. Is there anything else that you want to say uh, that I didn't ask you that you feel it's important for people to know? I think it's important to know when you're doing DEI work, being able to be compassionate when you're doing this work is really important, at least for me, so that you role model what you're asking others to do, which is also really, really hard. And transformation is hard and is difficult and people want to hold on to how things are normally done. And I think post-pandemic and post-COVID, people are exhausted, people are tired, people are um, overwhelmed with so much. But ironically, I think Floyd's murder and COVID helped us really see in very tangible ways how much more work we need to do when it comes to advancing justice and equity and sense of belonging. And I think the things are a pendulum that go back and forth. And the work that organizations like Civity does, the work that colleagues across really many different kind of institutions, not only academic, that hold positions of DEI or similar to the positions I have, um, I think it's just hard work that is not always as appreciated, um, that is not always understood by everyone, but that we really need to stick to it and keep on doing it. If we want to transform the nation, we need to start by transforming our communities and transforming our institutions because they are what makes up the nation. And so as uphill as it may look and feel many times, it's just being able to have the capacity to stay there and do it in compassionate ways and, and be consistent and take care of yourself and take a break when you need to. So I think that would be my encouragement for people that are doing this work to continue to do it and, and keep connecting with each other. Thank you to my guest, Jacqueline Font Guzman, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Eastern Mennonite University and Strategic Vision Director for EMU's Center of Justice and Peacebuilding. This is Civity features people who are building relationships to dismantle inequities and strengthen communities grounded in respect and empathy. Civity's theme song is Common Ground, performed by Tommy Castro and the Painkillers, written by Tommy Castro and Kevin Bowe, and used courtesy of Alligator Records and Dangerous Entertainment. Thank you for listening to This is Civity. Left, right, black or white, we all dream of